So, Doc, tell me about uh, testosterone therapy in women in your clinic. I think this is sometimes an odd talk for women. I think a lot of them don't understand, and I'll read directly from uh, some of Rebecca Glazier's work, which is probably the predominant researcher that I look at. Um, Testosterone is the most abundant biologically active hormone in women which comes as a big surprise uh, to a lot of women when I, when I say True that. or false, right? Yeah, I, that's true. I think it is. Not I think it is. It is. I mean, that, that's what the data show, show us, the, the, um, the biochemical studies. You know, you learn, you know, here, I got a piece of paper. So well, I always like to draw this for patients or, you know, if, if, if they're into this or they or require it, you know. That's interesting. I want to see it because I have a big uh, blackboard. I do all my drawings in, in for my patients and kind of describe them. So I want to see what you have. Maybe I can steal so, it. So, you know, I don't know if that's showing up. For it. You see this. Yep. Okay. So this is, let me right here. You know, day zero of the cycle, the menstrual cycle mm-hmm. on day roughly 30, right? You have, and this is, I mean, this is the artist rendition, but you know. Right. Not right. to scale. Okay. So you have these mid-cycle peaks in uh, uh, progesterone and estrogen, right? And then they'll taper off, right? Uh, and then you'll have your, your men- menstruation event, right? But nobody, no, and in medical school, that's what you learn, right? You know, you learn about FSH in, in terms of menopause and LH and the effect on the ovary. Um, you, you learn about the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis and ovarian function, but you never learn about, you know, this. And this is the second, this is the third line. Oh, I got this tube right there. And this is testosterone, right? This, this line here. Right, it's kind of like the old uh, kids' story of the tortoise and the hare, right? The the you, you know the tortoise goes really fast, but then peters out and up and down with the estrogen and progesterone. But that nice, slow, steady state leads to the predominant time, like you are drawn another under the curve, very under the curve calculus, right? So, um, so yeah, it's it's a fact. It's a, it's the dominant hormone, and you know, I Glazier's good. I like uh, Kathy Moppin's work. Um, she she wrote the book called The Secret Female Hormone which uh, that and some other authors, but her, that one really was one that I came across. Um, golly, this is an older book. It's maybe 10 years old. It was probably about, you know, eight, 10 years ago. I came across it. I actually got it in front of me. Um, and <clears throat> that really opened my eyes too, um, to the fact that the ovary is the big source of testosterone for mm-hmm. women. It's the most testosterone is the more abundant, most abundant hormone during the childbearing years menopause changes everything obviously yes <clears throat> and the adrenal glands take over some of the production of androgens not you know and and then anyways it's just not the quality or it's not testosterone one of the two and um yeah the dhea is not enough to right to um, make up for that testosterone drop exactly okay and so a big part of the symptoms of menopause and perimenopause come from that lack of testosterone. And that starts about 10 years prior to the Mm -hmm. final act of the ovary when it it completely burns out and estrogen is gone. So women oftentimes are losing their sex drive, maybe some muscle mass, metabolism issues, things that they're, but they don't have vaginal dryness, dyspareunia or painful sex because the estrogen is still present. So the, 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 the vaginal, the, you know, the, the, genitals and everything are still okay and, and so forth. And they kind of chalk it up to, uh, I'm married, I've got kids. As a woman, I'm not supposed to have the, or I'm not, you know, we're different than men and we don't, ha- you know, you just kind of. Well, and they don't have hot flashes and that's what most women equate. So they don't have the hot flashes and the symptoms. other, other, uh, the other 
symptoms can be attributed to age and, oh, society tells me this or that, you know, and, mm -hmm. and so, and Kathy Maupin talks a lot about the societal and psychosocial effects and, and how there's some kind of repression or inability to recognize that amongst women themselves. But when they get the hot flashes, oh my gosh, the, that vasomotor right. problem with your blood vessels, you notice that, right? That's another 10 years down the road when estrogen's finally burning out and then they, then they seek. So that was really eye-opening to me. And yeah, I, I completely agree with Glazier's comment there. Here's another thing that I, I learned from reading some of Rebecca Glazer's work is that at the at the local level, uh, a significant source of estrogen is the aromatization of testosterone. So the testosterone actually provides local estrogenic effect through that aromatization process. So the, the, I say that because I see this in my patients is say they have adequate estrogen levels on labs or the FSA shows that they're not in full menopause or you just, you're not ready to do an estrogen um, prescription due to the nuance of how I use estrogen uh, from a subjective standpoint, but they're still having mild estrogen symptoms. Sometimes a testosterone only uh, supplementation can correct those mild estrogen symptoms. Ooh, that's a good point. Have yeah. You, I, have you seen that? I've seen that now in retrospect after having multiple conversations with you over months and years. I don't think I recognized it early on. Yeah. And, it won't fix what I say, frank estrogen symptoms. So if you're having vaginal dryness, vaginal atrophy, there you go. true hot flashes, okay, yeah. you, you, you most likely need But if you're having sort of mild estrogenic. Um, and I like to, I, you know, I, I go slow and, and start, start low and go slow with my estrogen. And so maybe we're not ready to do a full, uh, pellet implant with estrogen, you know, in the, in the pellet. And so we do a little testosterone, uh, and that takes care of the mild symptoms. But you often see this is at some point you have to be astute as a practitioner, because sometimes what can happen is you become reliant on that testosterone when now it's time to add that that estrogen in there. And so you need to be ready at that point to add the estrogen when it becomes pertinent. You're absolutely right about that. And I know that I have, <clears throat> that has been a spectrum in my clinical development. I, I, I kind of probably missed the boat early on with that, honestly. And, you know, much like Glazier, it sounds like, uh, Kathy Moffin has a good graph or, you know, chart in her book, so to speak, where she kind of puts that she does a juxtaposition of testosterone deficiency sy sy symptoms as, as opposed to estrogen deficiency symptoms. And a lot of the two are, are similar and that's the problem. But when you get to the very specific cases of <clears throat> vaginal atrophy, any kind of tissue in and around the vagina, and then the lubricant, I mean, excuse me, the, um, you know, the, just the vaginal canal and so forth. Um, there is, that's obviously a, a, an estrogen thing. There is some independent effect of estrogen on the brain, although mm -hmm. testosterone with its massively beneficial effects on the brain can probably take care of the, the, the big working load of that. Um, a couple things you have to remember too, is if you're going to prescribe estrogen for a woman who's menopausal and has estrogen deficiency, don't forget if she's got a uterus, you better, you darn better write her for some progesterone so she doesn't bleed for sure. or she's going to come back and get you. I mean, nobody wants. Yeah. And not only is it subjective, I mean, objectively and medically it's necessary. And I, I, I really strive this to my, my new practitioner stepping into hormone. This is like rule number one. I still occasionally see it more from non-hormone practitioners, but if you're giving estrogen, 
and there is a uterus, you had better a hundred percent of the time be giving progesterone. Yeah. That is a, 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 there's a no brainer. There's no leeway on that. And you need to understand why so you can you tell them exactly it has to be done. Yeah. What's your preferred method of, for the woman to receive or, you know, to administer progesterone in your clinic? Is it, is it micronized I only, or pellet? Yeah. Micronized. I don't do pellets. And the reason I say, I tell patients that we don't do pellets when you look at, and I don't have my whiteboard, so I'm, I can't draw here, but when you look at the, the dissolution of pellets in, in a patient, in a female patient, the estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone are all dealt with very differently on a time scale. So your estrogen in the bloodstream very quickly, uh, it hits a steady state very, very, very quickly. Testosterone is a slow arcing curve. Progesterone, you don't ever really see that serum level significantly change. There's no good white papers out there that show a serum level that it gets high enough that it is uterine protective. And so you don't quite get to that five nanograms per deciliter consistently and efficaciously in order to rely solely on uh, progesterone pellet implants. So I always default to the micronized oral. Interesting. Now, now, when you say that, is that progesterone pellets from all types of so common binders are steric acid I've seen mm, and or cholesterol or cholesterol right? is that with both of those or you think it's just the- I think that there's no I don't know I mean it's going somewhere it's getting it's getting um, used by the body um, I will use or used to I don't use it a whole lot but I used to use progesterone pellets um, when it wasn't like a medically necessary thing but maybe for symptom driving um, and so early on maybe they weren't using estrogen and so but now I really just do a titrated dose of oral progesterone because from a med legal standpoint, also you have to be using levels uh, clinically significant enough to provide uterine protection. That's a good point too. Yeah. Hmm, that's a really good point. And that comes from oral. A lot of people. So five. Yeah. So for practitioners, that's somewhere between five and 20 nanograms per deciliter is the level that you, you know, it's, it's a bigger range, but you need to get to that five to, to sort of provide that. There's still a lot of people recommending progesterone pellets I've seen in the, in the. Yeah. And from, they do, people do use them. I just have chosen not to. And then from a uh, practical standpoint, I think I strongly, strongly believe your pellet extrusion rate with females should be 0% right out of the gate. hundred percent. You should not have a problem. Females are relatively easy. The pellets work great for them. Small volume of pellet. However, I've had, just a few extrusions in my career with females and every one of them has been progesterone. Three, I've had three, three extrusions, which is, you know, I, I still proud of my, my extrusion rate, but they've all been progesterone pellets. And I'm like, well, damn it. I'm not using these things anymore. I, I, we, we need oral for uterine protection. Anyway, I do oral only. Yeah. So here's a, here's a couple of interesting questions. So number one, how do, what do you do with the breast cancer patient? This is a good one. Uh, I have a lengthy talk of first and foremost with the patient. We describe all the literature as I know. We talk about relative risk, absolute risk. We talk about, um, you know, the concepts that they have to be, because this is the decision they have to make for them and their risk tolerance. And I always get an oncologist um, involved if they are an active breast cancer patient. Now, there is good research out there that Implants are safe, testosterone specifically, implants are safe for current uh, breast cancer patients. Like active? Active breast cancer. 
actually used for treatment. Um, in some, the, the in some breast cancers, androgens, yeah. Yes. Now I tell people I am not a research institute. This, this is not a research institution. We are not going to those. I am not an oncologist. However, it, knowing that literature is out there makes us feel comfortable in so much as our, you can extrapolate some information from it. However, for most of my patients, if not all of my patients on some level of cancer, whether it's a male or female, I, I bring the oncologist in and I get their, their blessing, so to speak, as, um, as a, also the patient, I think it, it shows that the patient that they need to be on board with this and they also need to have some onus of this. And here's the, how yeah. the steps of the process work, right? We're not just going to give you some hormones because you want to feel better and you're yeah. struggling, right? No, there's a process to this. You're an outlier. You have, whether it's a cardiovascular condition, whether it's a non, you know, an oncology issue and we get that oncologist um, involved in it. Yeah. It, we're, we're sympathetic to your, to your issues and your symptoms, but we don't want to be dangerous. And so I, I love to get the oncologist on board too. Um, I have not, and I haven't had any pushback at all. No. And I've not, I've not treated anybody with active breast cancer. I, uh, I have used testosterone women with breast cancer history. I have a lady who just, just yesterday, in fact, um, she had a history of estrogen receptor positive. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't have all the, all of the records, I had some of the records and her recollection, but it was a lobular uh, carcinoma, adenocarcinoma. She had received <clears throat> neoadjuvant chemotherapy to include anti-estrogen therapy and standard chemotherapy as well. Tac, I think uh, Taxotir and Adriamycin or Doxorubicin or maybe both. And then she she went underwent a double mastectomy. She had it on just on the one side. Uh, I think I believe she got lymph node biopsies too as well. That part I'm, I'm not not sure. It doesn't matter for our purposes. Was diagnosed or deemed no evidence of disease. Had had some problems with breast reconstruction, whatever. And she, anyway, she was very symptomatic. Very symptomatic. Tested her testosterone, and estrogen were in the toilet. Um, she really wanted estrogen too, and I said. Let, let, let's go over your symptoms. She did. And she hasn't been in a romantic relationship in like years, years. And so as far as she, and you know, no history of recurrent UTIs or as best she can tell, no problems with mm, vaginal atrophy or nothing that's bothering her, you know, nothing estrogen specific and hadn't, hadn't had a terrible time with hot flushes and vasomotor symptoms. So, um, we just went with testosterone only. I said, yeah. let's see if we can take care of the symptoms first. The The f interesting thing will be, and we'd got the oncologist on board too, just as a matter of course, but again, she was known as disease and was, you know, uh, in a state of remission, so to speak. So I, it, I don't know if that might've been overkill, but I thought it was a good idea anyway. And it, the interesting thing will be if she gets into a romantic relationship, starts having intercourse or something, and there's there's an issue with vag. I wonder what I'll you know what I'll do the, off the That's bat. It's a tough one. It's a tough one, right? The, off the bat, I'm thinking the, the way you'd want to go with it is she, you know, because she was adamant, like you know, I look, I know the potential risks. I don't want it, and they wanted to keep me on anti-estrogen therapy. I didn't want to do it. I don't care if it shortens my life. Yeah, yeah, and so. <sighs> And I, you know, I don't want to, I, I don't, I don't blame her, but at the same time, it's hard, right? You don't want to be part and parcel to somebody mm -hmm. incurring a state of disease either. So I think the way I would initially approach it is get with her oncologist and think, and just talk about maybe we can use local therapy, tro trochees or inserts and right. not systemic therapy. Um, I would go with local. Yeah. I tell patients too, like, I'm not scared, but I'm also not cavalier. 
And you have to be comfortable as a patient with my comfortability. Yeah, you don't want to be, right. and I that's tell us on training doctors, like you, even if the patient is comfortable, if you're not comfortable and you don't know what to look for and you don't know the the potential pitfalls that you could be missing, then maybe it's not the right setting. And let's say you're in a med spa. Maybe a med spa is not the right place to be doing hormones. Okay. It is because you have a background and before you did this and so you feel comfortable. Okay. Is it now the, the, the space to be treating a, you know, a right. patient with an oncology history? I mean, so you have to kind of use a lot of these things to navigate what's right for you. Um, I don't think I have any active breast cancer patients. I'm comfortable with the literature. I'm comfortable with my um, understanding, but I am not comfortable with um, that level of patient being under my current care um, because there's I don't have a breadth of practical experience with those patients. Right. Well, you bring so up a good point. I, like they still need to be following up with their oncologist, you know, like, mm -hmm. uh, if the ALKFOS all of a sudden goes up and it's not a biliary issue and there's, so you're thinking about bone mets, right. And, and say, or how are their, how are their, whatever they're doing in follow-up, you, you don't want to be doing that at a med spa or a solo practitioner mm -hmm. that's not an oncologist. So they need to continue that part. So that's, right. you know, that's just a matter of talking to them and getting in this coordinating care. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Or really, correct. I have active uh, testosterone patients with active cancer, and that is something that I am comfortable with. You have testosterone patients that have active cancers, cancers. Oh, uh, yes. and what types of cancer? I have a, I believe it or not, I have a couple of pancreatic cancers, um, and we got all clearance from their oncologist, but have done really well. Um, I have some with lung, I have one with lung cancer. I have, um, and there was one more, and I'm I'm drawing a blank. I want to say colon cancer um, that was just diagnosed. Um, so we go through a, a much more due diligence process, uh, you know. But I have found it to be beneficial for that patient subset when a lot of people, even with an oncology blessing, don't want to touch. And so, I, I would with an oncology I, blessing if the patient understood the risk and wanted to do it, and there was good reason to do yeah. it. Yeah. That's interesting. Good for you. Uh, that's, that's, that's the right way to do it. And you, you don't want to deprive those people of, you know, we'll give them, we'll give them any, any dose and number of narcotics and which you should to ease their pain. I, no problem. Right. And control substances, but, but we wouldn't give them bioidentical hormone optimization, mm -hmm. even with the proper due diligence, proper onboarding of the oncologist. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, that's just nuts right. to me. We would we, we withhold that from somebody. At the end of their life, we're just going to make them live this completely miserable life. It's just crazy. I mean, mm -hmm. like, um, <clears throat> now a couple of questions. I have two more, at least two more questions for you. So if it's a patient who, well, if, if it's a woman who you're going to do estrogen replacement therapy on, what's your dosing regimen? So I'm more conservative. I, I start low and go slow. Um, 
this is depending on where they are. So if they are estrogen naive, I start at the bottom. Uh, if you want to talk specific to pellet estrogen dosing, naive start... insofar as they've not had it before, you mean? Or correct, not synthetic, not hormone replacement. Um, they're not coming to me from another state or another town, or they're not coming to me from another practitioner, or they've never been on HRT in any kind. I start at six milligrams. If you want specific pellet dosing, I start at six milligrams, almost carte blanche, unless I have a reason to override that. But that's sort of my starting position. I have found that it's easier for me to go estrogen bottom up rather than trying to hit the dose exactly and then figuring out from there. For me, that's how it has been the better. And I tell the patient that's what I'm doing. I specifically tell the patient, this is how I approach your estrogen dosing. I'm going to start at the bottom because you will get resolution to some degree, no matter what, even if I miss the mark, the, the margins are so small that you're going to get some resolution to some degree. It may not be a hundred percent, but you see the writing on the wall. And so, because either way you can miss but, the mark, the other way you might be over, and you so correct. you have the the, the 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 problem of missing the mark and the problem of too much potentially, right? Right. Yeah. So with testosterone, I'm really comfortable. I try to hit the nail on the head. I can I can move either way. I feel completely comfortable, man or woman. I go right for what I think the dose specifically should be based on the parameters of, of the diagnosis and the prescribing. Estrogen, I usually err at six milligrams and build from there, six to 10 to 12 to 18, building up from there. With your, um, <clears throat> just like any practitioner, you get to know the doses of medications and you don't even have to use, um, pers you know, <clears throat> desk prescribing references. Prescribing right? yeah, yeah. But, but we all, but there do exist out there um, dosing, uh, proprietary dosing software, right? Pellcom has sure. some, and, uh, lots of people have them. Um, yep. Do you now, or have you, and, or have you ever used those calculators for, for your pellets? No, I, I don't, I don't use them. I did. And uh, you know, I so tell patients, I sort of learned the old fashioned way, if you will. I didn't really uh, know that these were out there for pellets. They're not as prevalent as they would be for standard medications. And so I just kind of learned by trial and error. Weight-based, um, volume and distribution estimation. Weight-based, volume distribution, talking to other practitioners. Um, and now I've gotten comfortable. I, I sometimes use the algorithms and dosing references as a, what I call as a second physician check. Like I think patient A needs X, Y, and Z. What would the dosing prescribing calculators say. And I'm like, oh yeah, I was way off or I was, well, I was on point. And according to like, as another practitioner, so to speak, to bounce my ideas off of. As a, as a, val a validity test kind of. Yeah. 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 Do you, in your menopausal patients ever attempt to, is it symptom relief only, or do you ever do in conjunction with that following like FSHs and trying to suppress that back down to something that's non-menopausal, like giving estrogen until you're suppressing that, or do you just go with? I generally go to symptom relief because I also tell patients I'm I, I, estrogen to me is one of the more side effects, prone, subjectively yeah. side effects of prone, and so we we want to go to we want to treat to symptomology. Um, a lot of the literature, you know, bears that out as well. I don't try to suppress FSH to a certain level. Um, so yeah, I, I usually go off symptomology. I sometimes, um, I find that as the woman, you know, premenopausal, perimenopausal, it's usually like a testosterone only, testosterone and progesterone sometimes. And then as we reach menopause, it um, you have to be really in tune if you're not checking FSH and LHs consistently. And then at that point, we add estrogen in. When you were starting out in, with your pellet therapy and so forth independently and <clears throat> women would come into the 
clinic was that was the estrogen component difficult for you was it like was it Very. was it saying did you say to yourself okay i, I know i'm gonna give you testosterone based on the labs of course i mean but i don't know if i'm gonna give you estrogen and then how did you how did you figure that out along the way so that that genesis you know in primary care you were taught to be really scared of estrogen estrogen was something not to be messed with that's for you know it just causes cancer it does all these things so i was already coming out of the gate a little bit nervous it is a treatment window that is really narrow so estrogen i tell other practitioners that if you are not an OBGYN, if you are not used to using these on a daily basis and when i'm training practitioners the 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 treatment window for estrogen is really small. The treatment window for testosterone is really big. So you have uh, a little bit of leeway with testosterone. More room for so error with the testosterone. More yeah. room for error. And with women, testosterone, I find, is almost really easy because you always run into subjective side effects that the woman is not okay with before <laughs> you run into objective side effects. Mm. Where So with women, they're pulling the dose back or pushing the dose forward. With my men, I'm pulling them backwards or pushing them forward based on labs and efficacy and, and, and safety protocols. But with my women, we don't ever run into hemoglobin hematocrit issues because- Say that again about the men and the women. You're, they're, the women are pulling you forward with the testosterone? So I tell a woman, you know, as we get going, you're going to likely guide a lot of this because in my experience, we still run labs and we still test and we still make sure, but my women run into subjective side effects before they run into objective side effects. Or, or so levels, like uh, objective levels that yes. are too high or, or something that you're- Yes. So they're, they're guiding that ship a little bit more, a little bit less on the testosterone and estrogen as well before we run into objective side effects meaning so if a woman comes to me and i just you know this is a fairly common one hey you know i'm having i'm starting to see some excess hair growth and i'm starting to see some oily skin maybe some acne they want to pull that dose back right 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 and so we haven't those are those are what we would deem subjective side effects um in their labs bear that the dosing is fine but it's not fine for them Lab wise, there's no issues I'm concerned about physiologically uh, in, within their their chemistries. There's no issues that I'm concerned about, but they want it pulled back, and so we pull it back. With my men, my experience is the opposite is sometimes true. Right? They are more comfortable and want to push those boundaries for what are generally perceived benefits, and I'm pulling them backwards. Okay, so it's the back. Okay, so women will back off on their own you have to make the men back off on their own. Right. right. And so a lot of practitioners, this comes out of some of my teaching with practitioners, is they're scared of testosterone in women. That is a generally really? blanket statement but, that that holds true. And are they, are they as scared or not scared at all of estrogen in women? Correct. Generally wow. not. So that's, that's, it's funny because I'm guessing, based on what you just said, that you'd be more scared of estrogen and not as, as scared of testosterone. For me... Mm -hmm. I'm completely opposite. I would definitely be way more scared of estrogen in a woman than testosterone. Mm -hmm. It just makes sense to them. They, they've heard of estrogen. They maybe have done it in a primary care setting. They may have done it in a birth control setting. They that just feels familiar to them. What's that old dogma? So, Estrogens for women and testosterone's for men. That's right. Both, both yeah, both so. sexes need both. Yes. Interesting. I think. <clears throat> have you have you had a lot of female patients that you felt like the estrogen component made or you know it, it could make or break or did make or break their treatment regimen and were you then glad to have 
learned more about it and started incorporating it. And you felt like your treatment regimens got more efficacious and more well-received by women, so to speak. A hundred percent. Yeah. Oh, really? Early on in my career. Yeah. Early on in my career, I found that maybe based out of my fear, I was relying a little bit on testosterone too much and my testosterone dosing got a little high. And when I was more comfortable, more consistently understanding of what I was doing and could add a little estrogen, my testosterone dosing came down and I hit a better steady state with these patients. And so I tell, you can't be scared. And I was practicing out of maybe a little bit of fear. And because of how I was trained as, from the primary care setting, um, and I, I found that when I wasn't scared, but was knowledgeable and could not do it when it was not necessary and do it when it was necessary, but know the right way to do it, I, my dosing got much better. So were you happy with the decreased and only, you know, you felt like you were just getting the testosterone they needed and getting the estrogen they needed too, or were there, were there literal things that they were pointing to that they were happy about? Yes. Literal things that, that provided benefit, right? You got to be careful because they can tolerate it from a chemistry standpoint, but sometimes they, you, you, you got to be careful. You don't over dose on the androgens. Hey, right? you're not going to run into when you're first you treat know, me, Jeff, I had a beard and now, and now, <laughs> now I feel just as good, but I'm so appreciative. I don't have a beard. <laughs> Yeah, you don't run into frank, uh, you know, clitoral megaly and things like that, and bone structure changes. Those are those are I th your dosing to get those things are so out of bounds with normal dosing in in what we're doing. But just subjective, like the sort of nuance. I feel I feel really good. Like that's sort of what encompasses that from you know a, a whole standpoint. You know, some women want increase in libido, but not hypersexuality, right? They're okay with a little bit of hair rate growth, but they don't want to be shaving three times a day. <laughs> They're okay if their skin becomes a little bit maybe increased in in oil production, and you know maybe they have dry skin anyway, so it's not a problem. But they don't want to be diving into acne, right? So it's just sort of dialing it all in, and one hundred percent. You need estrogen for that to happen for a woman. So the interesting thing about that is it sounds like it's a more homeostatic, more naturally homeostatic milieu. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's what the woman we're recreating what she, her youthful homeostasis or state of state of hormonal uh, levels. Right. We're not just, yeah. we're not just using the sledgehammer of testosterone to, to take care of mood and yes, that would be a good way, right? Oh, your mood's a little low. Let me just give you a bunch of testosterone, right? You know, it's more, much more homeostatic and nuanced. And so now I feel like, yeah, over here, I felt <clears throat> I've got good energy levels and my sexual desires back, but I just don't still don't feel like myself quote unquote, or feel as bad. Yeah. Now I feel like myself and I have all the other added effects too. So I think that comes a lot of times from progesterone dosing too. Sometimes progesterone does not get the credit because we don't have this thing to point to, right? Energy, testosterone, uh, hot flashes, estrogen. We don't a lot of times have that uh, that thing outside of pregnancy yeah. for progesterone to point at, right? We, we it sort of gets this like uh, it's just you know, like it's just it's like, like the, afterthought, it's like almost. the redheaded stepchild. Like it just you know it just needed. Yeah. Earlier. So, but there are some studies out there that show better. Um, reported results, self-reported results when uh, progesterone was included. Um, Do you find that variable though? Cognitive protective. It does. It has some good it? cognitive protective effects, but I, I find, I find for some reason, progesterone has been tricky for me and with women. Like some, mm. I don't, it's not been, I don't know. I, I it's, it's, I've always, well, I, I will always think that it's more beneficial than it ends up being. 
But I will tell you, perhaps I'm not dialing in as much on that therapeutic level and watching that therapeutic level of five to 20 nanograms per milliliter. Maybe that's yeah, that that is really for uterine protection. So a lot of times it is sort of I've kind of described it to patients. If you feel like you're excess and you're running high, type A anxiety, emotional swings, and you need more leveling progesterone. out, we are a lot progesterone, right? If you feel like you're a little too low and you need some oomph, that that's on the other side of the the coin. But if if that feels true to you when I say that, like I love you, the next minute I hate you, and I'm not really sure at either moment why those two were true. Um, <laughs> you know, like that, that maybe we need a little bit of that comment or sleep. Sleep is a big one for yeah. progesterone as well. Yep, yep. So we take it at night. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I agree. I see that too. Well, I, I, I appreciate the time, man. It's, it's, um, yep. I, I think those are the key things that make patient satisfaction better and lead to greater efficacy and results on for what the clinician is trying to achieve, not just a satisfied customer or a satisfied patient mm -hmm, in this case, mm -hmm. um, but they, you're getting the best physiologic results too. I mean, yeah, it's more than just like you said, a big testosterone hammer that, that fixes energy and libido or something. Right. I, I take a little bit different approach to it. All right, man. We'll see you next time. <laughs>